If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Happy little... 100! Yeah. <laughs> oh, we wish we were saying that to Betty, too, oh, no. singing that song. Why are you going to make it sad? I'm not, because it's happy. <laughs> the reason we're singing it is because of our unboxing of our new tarot cards. I'll let y'all talk about that. But yes. yes, our good friend Jeff at Parental Advisory Moving Podcast yes. sent Jeff us like forever. And yes, and, and his wife sent us forever ago a gift for our 100th episode, because which we're, we're supposed only to... just now getting to. <laughs> we were supposed to like try like around the new year to like nail the 100. It just, it didn't happen. Thanks, COVID. It's, it's we all, we it's all, fine. you know what? It's fine. In our own sweet time. Yeah, we do do things when we need it. Exactly. As we all should. Mm -hmm. Sorry, so we noise. are just super happy, like, loving this mm -hmm. whole, like... <laughs> Golden Girls tarot cards. <laughs> and we want to turn every single card into a t-shirt and wear it every day. Every day. <laughs> so, yay. And Nashville Ghosts. And yes, very sweet. So thank you Coffee. to our friends at Woo. Parental Advisory Movie Podcast. Yes, so we love They've it. always been our friends. We love them. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> thank you. So this is the 100th episode Bong. <laughs> I don't know how we could like show our excitement on the internet radio. On the internet radio, I don't the know. The applause button. Don't you have it on there? Oh, you have an applause button. <laughs> oh, we have an applause button. button. Okay. Wait, do you want me to say 100th episode again? Hold on. And um, I don't, I'm just going to push. Oh, hello. wait. She's pausing us. I'm not pause. I'm, uh, I'm, hold on. Oh, that's it. 100. <laughs> Dance party. Woo! <laughs> I don't know which one it is. <laughs> that is not it. That's the more like you know. the windows like re. <laughs> oh, there we it. go. Oh, you ready? God. Yeah. So, okay. This is our 100th episode. Yeah! Woo! Yeah. Thank you, thank you. We're leaving all that in, right? <laughs> I, I say we should. This is partly that we, we're feeling the joy because none of us has really been drinking much in the last month and a half. Courtney, what was our special hundredth episode drink? You didn't say hello to each other. Depending hello. on who you are. <laughs> Hi, Marleya. Hi, Patrice. Hey, Hi, Courtney. Courtney. Hi. <laughs> Courtney's like, do it right, y'all. Well, I haven't been here for a minute. Have I been here this year? No. no. I mean, you've been here, but we didn't record. We did 99 by ourselves. Right. And yeah, so it probably seems to the listeners like I've been drinking a lot because the last one I was on, I think we were pretty lit with Jingle Juice. Jingle Juice, Jingle Juice. Uh, <laughs> but um, this drink is our 100th drink i was trying to come up with an alliterative name Ooh, like alliteration and well even though it probably doesn't exactly fit i've decided i'm going to keep it anyway okay. so this is the centennial single barrel smash Woo! 
It's so, tasty. Even though centennial means 100 years, it's 100 that's, episodes. It's 100. That feels like 100 years because of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, so short. Mm-hmm. Single barrel Jack Rye. Apricot jam. Let's see. Orange mm-hmm. pills, lemon juice. Add a little peach schnapps and um, muddled it all together. Put a lot of Jack Daniels in it. Here oh we are. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, Cheers, God. y'all. It's whiskey. And I Cheers. can feel it. It's whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It takes about three sips to really settle in, and then you're like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is my first proper drink this year because I got the COVID. I don't know if they told y'all, but I got the COVID. It got me. Omicron mm. took me down for a few weeks. But mm. I'm here. I'm good. No hospital. Woo-hoo. Taste and smell. Yes. Lungs Taste are pretty and fit. Smell. Taste and smell. So. Taste and smell. Taste and smell. <laughs> but a dry January, not at my choosing. <laughs> mm. I'm the last woman standing, so we're all rooting for you, Patrice. We believe in you. Thank you. We believe in you, Patrice's Thank you. T-cells or whatever. Immune system. <laughs> yeah, I, you, I doubt, because none of my nothings is anything. <laughs> none of my nothings is anything. <laughs> New t-shirt. New t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just talking earlier about uh, we were talking about my birthday the last time that we saw a lot of our friends like all in one place mm-hmm. that we went and had you know the traditional Mexican food with the sombrero and the shot of tequila mm-hmm. and, and we had just recorded earlier uh, doing the Spanish flu of mm-hmm. 1918 and I was telling Marleya and Courtney it's like I've been mm-hmm. following this blog of over in China uh, they're quarantining and these you know this woman she's been isolated for like this past month and she's been documenting it and it sounds pretty horrifying and lo and behold, mm. that was like truly the last time that we have, like, mm-hmm. as a huge group, mm-hmm. been all together. February 2020. February 2020. Yeah. You were our oracle. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. That's like Ooh. the wrong shit. I need to be like, gun, and we are going to be gazillionaires. <laughs> Soon the lottery. And <laughs> on the Mediterranean. On the Mediterranean <laughs> in our own yacht. We're all going to live in I just Greece. have a feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, universe. Come on, universe. But yes. So we were talking about that, and uh, we were talking about episodes since this is our 100 like some episodes that yes, we that's really we've been doing this for a hundred episodes 100 years i know it's and like we've always commented before we're not as consistent as we used to be because life mm-hmm. but us consistently still doing something for a hundred times is like the most we mind blowing on the back <laughs> patting right now <laughs> It's just I'm just amazing. I'm so fortunate to have you two in my life. I know, I'm me so too. Thankful Thank for both you. of you. And we're all we've thought a lot about how awesome it is that so many of you like, <gasps> listen yes. to this. I know. Still. And that we've gotten to meet so many people. Yes. And that was one of the things we were talking about. It's like all that well, and we really, really mm-hmm. miss meeting you and right. we really, really miss doing live shows. Absolutely. So much. So much. But yes. we're we we talked through all the cool stuff we've done we talked about our our live show at the goat house in montgomery mm-hmm. at, uh, well our first show was at um 
Uh, Aniston. The Peerless. The Peerless. The Peerless. Yes. Was it the Peerless Saloon in Aniston? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Christy Farmer. Christy for Farmer us set was that up. a gym. And, and all of our all friends, our friends like showed up. Yeah, ton. It, was, it was a great crowd. And we had like some really, like two really, I had the, what did I tell? Mummy. You did a mummy. You I did, did a, the mummy. Yes. You did and, that bride. And I did the pickled bride of Colonel Chancellor. The pickled bride. Say the gooey one. Was like, that was around Valentine's Day, I feel like that show was. I feel like we were doing some weird Valentine. I don't know. Yeah, but, I, I um, don't either. But yeah, it that was a lot of fun. And a lot of people showed up. And oh, yeah. So excited. And then we did the um, Pod X. Yes, we did Pod X. Thanks mm-hmm. to the encouragement of our friends locally. Yeah, Jenna and... Uh, we met Heather, mm-hmm. who's and we met Jeff there, and we met Jeff. Jeff I, from that's where we Parental met Jeff. Advisory. Yes, we met I forget Jeff at that. I just always assume that we've known Jeff forever. Because <laughs> <laughs> Marlaya said that last time. She's like, and we met Jeff. I was like, did we meet him there? <laughs> Didn't we already know Jeff? Didn't we already know right? And yeah, Jeff, absolutely. And then we did uh, our, our Halloween episode at the Goat House with yes. the Goat Man Ate My Brat oh, story, which was amazing. Yes. And all of our friends that came with us to that show, and all of oh. our friends that we randomly met and took home oh, to took our home Airbnb with to watch movies with. <laughs> and we watched the Ar- with Arkansas. We watched Shark and Shark Shark Massacre. Whatever. What was it? It was Women's Prison. Women's Prison. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. So that was Paige and Mary Beth. We just randomly brought home from the bar. We met Kellyanne. We met Kelly fucking Kellyanne. Fucking Kellyanne. Absolutely. We just um, like we have made so many just great friends yes. and acquaintances, even though that we don't really hang out. I know, like and I wish to. we like our good friend James at the Goat House. I really wish we could get back there and do I stuff know. up with him again. He's oh, such no. a good friend. And we went to Watumka. We met Watumka. Scott. Scott who told a story for us at Watumka, and yes. thanks to Christy Meener who put us up there, and that and was set a great up show with her too. Stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, we did this the Stone Center, and we did the Stone Center here yeah. in Jacksonville. Alabama and so thanks to Randy Blades who set Thank us up you, with Randy. that. It had nothing to do with nepotism whatsoever. No. He was just <laughs> recognizing our great talent. Oh, and uh, that was a lot of fun. We brought the haunted doll to the oh, theater and Jen disturbed several of his students and faculty with uh, why we brought it here. Yeah. <laughs> why did you bring that here? Yes. Um, and all of our hometown people, hometown stories. Of our, or what yes. do we call them? Sorry. No, ah. listen. Our listener lore, everybody who's ever done a listener lore. But that was a hometown there because that's when Freddie gave Freddie his story and of, oh, of yes. the theater, and Jen gave her yes. theater story of that's Birmingham. Right. We had some mm-hmm. good stories. We haven't done many listener lures, but if you are like, you know, if you've got a story to tell, we're still yeah. up for it. And you know, story. A oh, true story. Trey's 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 story. Oh, story. <laughs> yes. Trey's story was stellar. Whoa, and that was whoa. our what listener lore number six, I think it was. It was mm-hmm. like the time my girlfriend was possessed. <clears throat> you need to go we back and listen to that if house. you haven't. That was our goat house. Yeah, that that one like took me by surprise. Yes, and I'm still too. haven't like recovered <laughs> from that one. We will post all these episodes that we are listening in our show notes for mm-hmm. our one hundred. Uh, but we were t- also talking about our favorite, like, mm-hmm. you know, we do have some favorites. And, of course, I don't remember the numbers. <laughs> and so that will also get posted. But my favorite, I have a lot of favorites early on. Mm-hmm. And my favorite was the one 
the Rockford. Mine too. The Rockford Week. haunting. Because that was the first one where Marleya maliciously <laughs> went after me as far as like my nerves and the scariness of it. Talking about like the, the boo hag and mm. all of like the different things. And I think I just talked of the show that the story i did before yours mm-hmm. was the um haint blue yes oh, and, and it was it was too. one of those times because yeah. we used to always have that where all of us we never talked to about our about our what mm-hmm. we were going to talk about and then all of a sudden they would be like practically the same thing it would be yes like an obvious through line, through line. Mm-hmm. but yeah the rockford story oh. and jenny who wrote the book the book that that's based on is called haint blue mm-hmm. the rockford house haunting and that uh, was so weird and, we and there on our good, way back from our montgomery yeah Yes, we did. she actually show. she actually let us in on a couple of secrets about like kind of where to look mm-hmm. for the house and you know we won't share that because she asked us not to because people don't want to get like mobbed by strangers right. but um it you know she's been a pretty cool person all along mm-hmm. too so that's another friend we've um, and we saw bigfoot on the and we saw, big- and we saw <laughs> yes we saw somebody's yard bigfoot <laughs> so let me just set up the story here so we're all a little tired we're driving back and so we decided to drive past the rockford house which was totally not what mm-hmm. any of us had like pictured in our brains mm-hmm. and so we drove past that and so we're like okay let's go on home did, had we already visited the, uh, graveyard. the graveyard? Yeah, we visited Willie's grave um, right. also already at mm-hmm. that point. We're Which is really there. freaky because he was buried right next to the people he killed. Yeah. 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 That was that was a little freaky. And so we're just driving, you know, we're all maybe still drinking. I can't remember. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I yes. know a Some of us were. were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we're just like cruising on the way, you know, Brandy's driving and I'm just like listening to tunes and talking about the show and everything. And all of a sudden Courtney goes, there's Bigfoot. There's Bigfoot. And she sits up and and we're like, we, we were, we're kind of like BFE. What? No we Yeah. We, are, we turn around and we're like, okay, maybe she's like having an episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's going on? And she's like, no, there's Bigfoot. Randy, turn around. <laughs> turn around. And and so we all look around and we're like, okay, Randy, turn around. There's Bigfoot. And when she says Bigfoot, I'm like, okay, is there actually like Bigfoot? <laughs> Did he just like walk across the street? Because this is what I'm like. Somebody said there's Bigfoot. I'm like looking for the live Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of confused at what's going on. And we turn around and we drive up and there is uh, three <laughs> beautiful statues <laughs> in front of this property of like Papa Bigfoot, Mama Bigfoot, and Baby Bigfoot. And yeah. it was it was they amazing. Were like the metal yes. right. shades. And why did we not like woods. take pictures? I did. <laughs> okay. I think, I think we yeah. I was uh, but say. we didn't do like a group picture. No. I think we were kind of freaked out at being on people's yeah. land. Yeah. We were out where you don't get out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And there We've was talked a, about there was this a fence before. at the road too. I like. We're I from the we south. We know better than to get out on people's property. Right. <laughs> we don't we know, know. Out in the middle but of if you do, if you have a bigfoot on your property, it's kind of like you're asking for people to come yes. on your property. This is I a mean, photo op. It is, no, a this is a photo op. Yes. <laughs> so that was crazy, and I love that. And I'm glad you took a picture of it. I just don't have any idea. Like I don't think I remember seeing. That them. was back when we took our our photos and dumped them all in one big strange south photos oh. like folder in Google Drive or something. 
thing. And we'll have to go like, look. Like they all yeah, just lived there. I was like okay. trying to look now, but you're right. I bet that's where it is. Mm-hmm. I feel like one of like. What's one your of, favorite? One of my favorite episodes. It's it's a weird favorite episode, but it's one of the ones that always sticks out to me as something that, like the whole episode was just hilarious to me, and I'm not really even sure why. Looking back, I just it's like that. That's just the impression that it leaves. But it was like. It was episode 51. It was the vegetable man and the, like, she turned me into a newt. Oh, like, yeah. That was one that, because I remember it was in the middle of pandemic because we did it on Zoom and I was sitting in my bed trying to do this. And I just remember laughing my ass off doing that <laughs> whole thing. And I was just, because I had gotten the story and I was like, I don't think there's really anything to this. No. Like, I don't think I've got a lot of substance here, but we're just going to go go with it. And we just <laughs> fucking went insane laughing. <laughs> And the other one that was one of my favorites was the um, Dicks in a Box. The yes. <laughs> the Dicks in a Box the, episode. The, yes. The Tobacco Enema. <clears throat> yes. Oh. Yes. I was like, that was, was Dicks in a Box. That was a great. Well, because it was that. Wasn't that the museum? It was the museum. Yeah. yeah. That <laughs> Patrice did it. It was like. I the, remember the story when mm. you said it, but I didn't know Dicks in a Box. <laughs> that was the name of the episode, too. I forgot. <laughs> Yes, it's, I am. Oh, that might be episode fifty-one. That was uh, I don't remember what number the other one was, but that was we like will put the, I am Sadie Baker and yes, Dixon and Box, and, and it was that was a fun episode. Mm-hmm. I, I laughed my ass off on that one too. That was a great find. Those yeah. are those are one of my favorites. When I find that thread and I pull on it, and it's like glitter explodes. <laughs> yes, that's my favorite. Yes. Um, we have a lot of good memories. We're too. still making them 100. Yeah. Here we are. We've made it. We got to get on it. We do. Let's get on it. Let's, Let's make some memories. We're making, <laughs> making memories in the basement. Making memories at home still since 2020. Home. Oh. My home and this home and your home. That's the only places we've been, basically. That's but. okay. It'll be over soon. It'll be over soon. Oh, It'll be over it's soon. It's not. It'll be over soon. It's not. It'll be over soon. Don't say that, Patrice. Shh. It's not, y'all. It's not trying to be real. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave my house sometime though. More. I'm gonna leave my house more. Well, I mean, yeah, you're super like only for I don't even know know. for like six months. Yeah, no, I've had COVID and two shots and a booster, so now I'm like super immune for Mm -hmm. maybe like six months, three months, three months, no no more than three months. Yeah, and possibly as little as one. So I'm like, fuck it all. I should have done everything. I also, yeah, I don't know. I can't see the future. I just know we we have to. We have to just keep living our life. We got to live it sometime. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back places. I'm going to go back and do things. And I'm going to wear my mask and I'm not going to bitch about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'll just be in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking we have to for bring photos the joy to Patrice. and I'm getting pretty depressed because there's all these places I've been before 2020 no we can't we need to stop "Ah, don't look anymore no it's coming again it's coming again (laughs) we're gonna go to new orleans next year we already decided Mm -hmm. yeah yes take that is this silent like (laughs) put that in the universe are you ready Yes. Should we start episode 100? Yes. 100. I scared you patrice is like what am i ready for what what (laughs) what's happening what happened (laughs) this do it is an episode <laughs> this is a story that i found yesterday <laughs> yay you would yay. think that i would have put more into this but i did and then i was like this sucks and i trashed it <laughs> you know episode 100 is about the heart <laughs> and it's okay if you don't like have all the feels for your story mm-hmm. 
So, yep. Well, let's do it. I'm going to do, do it. it. I'm okay. excited. I'm ready. We're in Arkansas this week. Oh, Arkansas. Arkansas. Um, so, Quitman, Arkansas. Have no idea. Which you've what that never is. heard of. Yep. It's a very small town. So, Little Rock, you know, Little Rock's like right smack dab in the middle of Arkansas. Mm hmm. Unless <laughs> so I read the map wrong. And then, um, Quitman is like just due north of of Little Rock, kind of almost halfway between like Little Rock and the border, the northern border. So it's okay. There's less than 700 people in Quitman, Arkansas, according to the 2020 census. Quitman, Quitman, Q-I-T. Quitman, Quitman. Stop it. Uh, and also, see, I looked up a lot of, um, you know, like uh, census records, <laughs> and I was like, oh, look, I got access to Ancestry.com and all of these record sites. Um, so there's like, it's almost 92% white. There's like four black people in the census. So, you know, this is mm-hmm. the town we're in. Um, it has more churches than anything. Mm-hmm. There's like, there's a Methodist church and a more, but actually, no, there's not a Methodist church. There's a Mormon church and there's a Mennonite church and a Baptist church. And there's a church called Hope Unlimited, which kind of sounds like a Jesus box store or something. Mm, yeah. But um, there's like a catfish barn restaurant and a high school and a Mexican restaurant. And that's all you really need in life. Well, yeah. So um, I it tried. Sounds like a typical <clears throat> southern town. Right? Exactly. I was just gonna That's say. what we're going for. So not the Mormon church. Yeah, the part. Mormon church is or the Mennonite. Edition. Yeah. It's like Mormon church all the way on the west side of town, Mennonite all the way on the east side of town, which yeah. isn't really that far <laughs> from each Ooh. other, anyways. But um, so uh, I tried to find newspaper records about Quitman and you get like obituaries and high school basketball scores. So, you know, that's Southern town. We all know this town. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of stories out there about Quitman, but there's one that sticks with the town, no matter how much they wish they could ditch it. And that's the story of the dog boy of Mulberry street. Oh, so a lot of people over the years have told stories about this and this like since over the years meaning since like 1990 Mm -hmm. um folks have told of walking mulberry street in quitman alone at night and suddenly feeling a presence nearby and looking off into the bushes and seeing like this hulking entity like a man but like kind of hunched down with glowing eyes that all of a sudden will drop to all fours and chase the fuck out of you down the street and if you don't run fast enough it will bite at your heels while you go that's the kind of story that people mm-hmm. tell dogman story right <clears throat> and like so many stories of this kind it seems to come from a combination of like gossip and um you know overheard things and kids games and trying to scare each other and actual real events. And most people who've talked about this, and I don't know that there are a ton of people who've talked about this, but most people who do tell, um, tell this story, say that the real events might actually be a little creepier than oh shit the legend. So <clears throat> the story that I'll credit for this, and most of what I'm telling from comes from this story that was in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in 2007. It was written by Lisa Armstrong. And she went through local records and talked to local folks to try and kind of get to the bottom of where some of this came from. And she started with Floyd Bettis. So he was born in Cleburne County, which is Quitman's County in Arkansas, in 1909. Um, he enlisted in 1942 as a warrant officer 
And, you know, so this is still World War II is going on. So he did the thing, you know, he enlisted, he went to the military. Then the war ends in 1946, he gets married, but then he, he files for divorce in 1948. And the reasoning is intolerable treatment. So I'm guessing maybe his wife was cheating on him. That's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, I don't know. Sometimes Southern men think like if you don't cook three squares that's intolerable treatment it's intolerable yes. sure yeah. it would be a legitimate it's considered legitimate reason of course to file for divorce and so you know after two years of marriage they divorce and you know they have no kids and um he remarries again in 1915 or sorry in 1950 in june 1950 he marries aline moore and by this time he's 41 years old and Aline is 35. Neither of them have any children. This is the 50s. And it's like, you might as well be dead by now. Right. You know, come on, chop, chop, chop. Make some kids, nuclear family. Right. Let's go. Um, so they are really anxious to get a family going, but it doesn't work immediately. And finally, finally, in 1953, three years they've been married, they have a son and his name is Gerald on his records, but also Gerald in a lot of records, you know, the way it sometimes goes. Right. So, um, they have this child, they move into this nice, big Victorian style, beautiful house on 65 Mulberry street, Mulberry street in Quitman, Arkansas around where he's from. Um, Gerald grows up sort of alone in Quitman because, um, you know, he he does have some cousins, but who, who live near them, like in their county, near their town, but they're 20 years older than him. You know, everybody else had kids on the normal at that time timetable. Right. And so these 18. kids are gone. Mm-hmm. They're not even in town anymore. Right. Um, his grandfather died before he was born. His grandmother lived 40 minutes away and died when he was 10. So it's not like he had that right. family unit that you expect in towns like this. In small southern towns, you kind of expect that there's going to be because you're going to have your people around. Yeah. yeah. He didn't have his people around. Like probably I would imagine a lot of other kids did. Right. So, um, you know, he, he sort of grew up alone just from the get-go. And people say that maybe because he was such like a late-in-life godsend to his parents that the discipline game kind of just got thrown out the window. You know, they're like, oh, this is our baby. This is, you know, our angel. We're going to do everything for him. People kind of gave the impression that that was how he was treated. Right. And that was how he became, like, used to being treated by everyone. Right. Um. So there was a Quitman resident resident named Mary Nell Hollibird, and she talked about how his parents, Floyd and Aline, were good people, but Gerald was nasty. He was a brat, he was vicious, and he was cruel, she said. Um, And another longtime resident named Nelda Kennedy said in this article that um, he also had trouble at school. So... One of the, you know, one of the things about not having your people, you know, there's nobody to just stand up. You don't have siblings. You don't have cousins. Nobody's going to stand for you. Right. And And nobody's also going to set examples for you. Exactly. And so um, kids would bother him at school. They would steal things from him. And he, he was a big kid. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you, you know, anybody who was a like larger than expected child growing up, but boys who are bigger than their age, Mm -hmm. they don't always have an easy i mean i know they can like plummet you like pummel you on the football field Mm -hmm. or whatever but like they look 
if people think they're dumb right because they're bigger than their brain actually is you right. know because they're not actually as old as they look right and so th- sometimes they can really get like raked mm-hmm. over because right. they're just they just look like lummoxes you right. know sometimes so he's getting all this kind of shit from kids at school um so Nelda Kennedy said he was also though it wasn't just that he was like um harassed at school it was that he was also like really arrogant and he would seek attention she almost like made it sound like he would go out of his way to get harassed which i think is maybe an adult's flawed way of looking at how children behave Mm -hmm. but um you know there was one time where there was a a family reunion at the quitman city hall and he was there and he like pulled this chase lounge out from the side and laid down on it and grabbed like a thing of grapes like a bunch of grapes and was like feeding himself grapes like he was a roman god or something right and everybody was just like what the fuck is like what the hell is this kid doing so he had a he was theatrical flair. He was living his best life. Also, I recall <laughs> Bugs Bunny doing that a lot. So right. depending on his age, that may not have been that it unusual may have been, of a thing. It may have just been like a joke. Yeah. You know, kind of deal. Yeah. And nobody got it. But um, so as he got older, though, the neighborhood started noticing like weirder things about him. So he would always be wandering around the streets and he would be wandering around surrounded by stray animals like dogs and cats. And um, so that's where he got the nickname Dog Boy. Mm. But they they originally they were like, well, maybe it's because he's lonely because he doesn't have friends. You know, nobody else comes home with him. So he has these strays. But people started saying, like, he would take them home and do things to them. And um, Miss Hollibird said that she could hear the dogs howling at night. Oh, shit. And so people started to keep their distance more and more as Gerald grew older. And there's there's no record of him having a career. There's no record of him having a military enlistment at any point. There's no record that he ever moved out of his parents' house um, or tried to live on his own to try and kind of start his own life in another town. And Nelda Kennedy said, this is another one of the residents, that she was afraid of him. She said, if you had ever seen his eyes, they seemed to glow at night, which I was like, oh, that's over, but okay. Yeah. Um, but she said, one time he came over here and got onto us because we had trimmed a magnolia tree that overlapped into his backyard, she said. And when they started cleaning that house up, the house that, you know, the magnolia tree, um, one of his uncles came to my house to borrow a gun because he was afraid that Gerald would get riled up about it. Like people didn't, people were afraid of what Gerald was going to do mm. if he got ticked off. Um, he, as he grew, he became this towering guy. He was six, four, he was 300 pounds. And so he's much bigger than his father. Who's still living with him now over 60 years old and is a foot shorter. I think than Gerald, according to his enlistment records, he was like five, five four. four. Oh yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. And so like Gerald is definitely like the the body of power in that household and Floyd and Aline Bennis were seen as they were seen less and less outside their house as time goes on. So people started saying that Gerald was like physically and psychologically abusing his parents, that he was keeping them on the upper floor Mm -hmm. of the house and not letting them come down. If they're hungry, if they have to do something like they have to come down with his permission, if they want food, they eat whenever he decides it's time for them to eat. Like, that's kind of how people outside the house believe things are going. And they also started getting the idea that Gerald started beating his father when he was still in his teens, like on the regular. Mm. 
So one night, neighbors heard yelling outside the Bettis house, looked out their windows to see Floyd Bettis hanging to an, like the window ledge of an upstairs second floor window because Gerald had thrown him out of the window. Oh, shit. And police came, but there's no record of any, like, re- you know, they didn't arrest press him charges. as far as we know. Yeah, yeah, like Floyd didn't press charges. So we don't really know what happened after that, but he didn't go to jail for it. And then um, in 1981 when Floyd was 72 years old, he died in his home. And the newspaper said it was from a long illness. Neighbors all said that for whatever reason they decided this, that Gerald had thrown his father down the stairs and broken his neck. And the next year after Floyd died, Aline Bettis Bettis broke her hip and had to be sent to the hospital. And while she's in the hospital, um, one of the women who's been, you know, talking about what she's seen in this family over the years, mm-hmm. um, Mary Nell Holabird, she's she's a retired nurse. And so while Aline was in the hospital, Gerald came to see her. And Miss um, Holabird said that she witnessed Gerald like slapping his mother while she was in her hospital oh bed, threatening her, telling her that he would sick the police on her if she told them what he had done no shit and so you know i was kind of like well so much of this stuff is like well people said well neighbors believed well and i was like so a lot of it is is maybe just people's imaginations maybe people just making up their own stories but this was not because she was actually removed from the house and put in adult protective custody after this happened so it wasn't just the neighbors who were thinking there was something wrong there was actually like they removed documents yeah because he would be what like 20 he was in his yeah he was in his late 20s um so meanwhile you know they take they take (laughs) Aline and they move her meanwhile gerald is back at 65 mulberry street he's living in the house he continues to collect stray dogs and cats apparently this entire time and somebody even says that he builds an extension to the house partly to house these animals so that he can do whatever it is he does with them but it's also a sunroom so when the police come to talk to Gerald, they decide that the sunroom is not for collecting animals. It's for growing pot, which he gets arrested for and sent to jail for in 1984. And he dies of a drug overdose in jail in 1988. Oh. So. Wow. And he's only 34 years old when he dies. So the house <coughs> at 65 Mulberry, it it stays in Aline Bennis's name until she dies in 1995. I swear, the, this entire time, every time I say Bettis, all I think of is Jerome Bettis, like the Steelers, like yeah, <laughs> guy. Yeah, I have the no ball player. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, but in the late 90s, I would say so. Uh, Aline died in 1995, and in the late 90s, then the um, the house is sold to the truck driver named Tony Weaver and his wife, and they started noticing weird things happening inside the house. Shortly after they bought it, Tony's wife, you know, some of it was like the easy stuff. Like Tony's wife would turn off all the lights, be absolutely sure she turns off all the lights when she goes in for night shift. And then when she comes back on, all the lights are on. And um, it happens enough times that she's like, she starts to think that there's even like intruders in the house. Like, Mm -hmm. why would somebody come into your house and turn on all your lights and that be the only thing they do? Mm -hmm. But, you know, she really can't make any sense of why this happens. Another time she's standing like in the foyer by the front door and there's a staircase that goes up to the second floor. And, um, she sees like pennies floating in the air down the staircase that then all of a sudden out of nowhere, just like drop all at the same time and clatter to the stairs. And she's like, that is what? A bizarre. It's, it's a weird one, right? Yeah. 
And so Tony Weaver also claims that he saw a man um, looking through the foyer into the living room once. He was working on the house, and this man was outfitted like a World War II soldier in a uniform and a helmet. And he said that he looked like a 100% real person. And um, the guy, the person that he saw, walks into the living room, and Tony tried to chase him, and he got there, and there's no one there, of course. And it turns out that the family that owned this house before the Bettises bought it had a son that fought in... I'm sorry, I said World War II, but I meant World War I soldier. Mm-hmm. And they had a son that fought in World War I and died at the age of 21, the Jackson family. Um, so Tony's wife takes all of this information and it's just like six months in she's like i would not like to live here anymore right i would like to move smart Mm -hmm. so they move out and they start renting the house out so quentin and stephanie white move in in 2003 and stephanie immediately starts talking about weird things happening again just the small things like the the toilet will flush right and there's nobody in the house but the toilet will flush by itself um And then one day Quentin is working on the house. He has gone upstairs and stacked a pile of two by fours in one of the bedrooms upstairs. He's come back downstairs to get something and he hears this just like crash upstairs, runs back up the stairs, goes into the bedroom and all of the two by fours are standing on their ends in the room. Oh shit. And so the couple only lives there for a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> and, Don't uh, blame them. And Tom Tom Weaver, who still owns the house, the truck driver, he, on and off for years, tries to sell this house and cannot do it. And he starts getting more and more pissed with whatever these spirits are that don't want this house. Mm-hmm. He says, if you bring somebody in here that they don't like, you're going to feel chills and your hair will stand on end because they let you know if they don't want someone here. Mm-hmm. And he said, one lady was interested in buying the house. She brought her young daughter with her and she said her daughter was like a sensitive. Mm-hmm. And... um while the women were walking through the home, the daughter was like, I feel very, very sad here. And they were like, mm, we're out. That's it. That's it. Bye. Another time there were prospective buyers who were walking through the house and a recliner in the living room flipped back. Like there was somebody <gasps> laying in it and stayed that way the entire time they were there. And like nobody had touched it. There was another time somebody brought their dog to go see the house. The dog refused to step up into the front door. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Trust your pets. Trust your pets. So um, the last one was like there was a remodeler named Ed Munnerlin who was working on the house. And this was in 2007. I mean, this, these really yeah, aren't old stories. Long. No. But he said he he's one of those who's like, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in paranormal things. But um, he starts to feel uncomfortable working in the house. He has a day job. He only does renovations at night. You know, I have a lot of friends who do that kind of stuff, too. You know, it's just the time that you have free because you work all day at something else. So he goes in and every time he goes in, he feels like somebody's looking at him. It's not like something he's never done before. He's worked on other houses. He doesn't feel like this every time he goes into an empty house at night. But this house makes him feel creeped out. And so he has pulled up to the house multiple times while he's working on it to see a man in an upstairs window dressed in a bow tie and a brown jacket. And he says that when he's in the extension to the house, which is the sunroom that Gerald built for whatever reason, Gerald built it. Mm-hmm. He's seen a huge odd looking man with long brown hair, creepy eyes, he says, and great big arms and hands. And he, he says one time he walked right in front of me and glared at me. And he said, right after I saw him, he walked through the hall and he disappeared. Mm. And in 2005, the Central Arkansas Society for Paranormal Research, which 
is a fun little acronym because it spells Casper. Um, oh my god! <laughs> they're they're uh, and I don't. I think they may be defunct because I had a hard time tracking stuff down. But I will post one or two YouTube videos of their investigation of the house. But they did an investigation in two thousand five of the house, and they heard pennies falling. You know, you know how I am about paranormal research people. Like right. I'm generally like one of their videos was listen for the man breathing. It's not the cameraman. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. But, you know, but they they said that they found cold spots. And I mean, see now, but I should believe because a damn doll breathed on the like right. podcast with me. But they they heard the pennies falling. They said they saw a face in the window at one point. Um, and they brought a medium in who said that she was like cursed at by a spirit and told to get the hell out. Mm -hmm. So the house has been on and off the market again and again and again since the death of Aline Bettis. And it sold for half its asking price in 2014. They had just kept on having to drop it and drop mm. it and drop it. Um, but it was back on the market in May of last year. Oh, wow. And so its most recent sale was June of 2021. Ooh. So it'll be interesting to see how the new owners make out. <laughs> My gosh. But that is the story of the dog boy of Quitman, Arkansas. Ooh. Wow. Did anybody else see the dog? Well, I guess that was him with the weird eyes. And yeah, and somebody wall. actually said that they had seen the person, the guy in the brown coat. They said that they'd seen a large man in a brown coat holding a cat mm -hmm. in the upper window. So, oh God, I got chills. That one, it's the it's the two by fours on their ends that gave me the chills on that one. Yeah. To be honest, that but what was the crash then? Standing I don't know. Up, I guess clank, it was them all together. clanking together while they stood up, <laughs> but. Yeah. Good one. So, eee! dog boy. Good job. All right, y'all. We'll be right back. Do you want more Strange South every week? We can help. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast, to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community. Do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share? Email us at stories at thestrangesouth.com. Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, thestrangesouth.com, along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. You can do it, Patrice. I'm trying, y'all. <laughs> we put on glasses, remove glasses. you. This 100th episode, I do not have a 100th episode like ba ba <laughs> glitter and glam, but we're going to get there. I'm going to have to do this in two parts. So tonight is part one of Tallulah Bankhead. <gasps> Ooh. Do you know about Tallulah Bankhead? I know that name. I do too. I know the name. But I can't remember why. Well, I have two parts to tell you awesome. about Tallulah Bankhead. And if we just lived a year in her life, we would have lived a full life. <laughs> she is so prolific at everything. But Tallulah Bankhead is the celebrity, actress, personality that Cruella DeVille oh, was modeled yeah. after by awesome. Disney.
Tallulah Bankhead was born in January 31st, which would be tomorrow. Tomorrow, like anniversary, yeah, happy right? Nineteen oh two in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, in Huntsville. In Huntsville, Alabama. She's an Alabama girl. And she was born to William Bankhead and Adelaide Eugenia or Adam Bankhead. And her great-grandfather was James Bankhead, who was from Ireland. They settled in South Carolina. And Tallu, which was like her nickname, was the name given to her from her paternal grandmother. So her paternal... <laughs> Five drinks, y'all. <laughs> um, her paternal grandmother was named Tallulah as well, and she was named after Tallulah Falls, Georgia. Oh, yeah, okay. Tallulah's father was... They came from, like, a political family, very active in the Democrat um, Party in Alabama and the South, which was pretty much the minority. Mm. And in 1936, her father was the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. She was the niece of Senator John Bankhead and granddaughter of Senator other John Bankhead. <laughs> so, so, no, sorry. That was John Bankhead the second. There's a lot of Bankheads, mm -hmm. apparently, in Alabama. A lot of Bankheads. They're all political in the Democratic Party. Her mother, Ida, was actually from Como, Mississippi, which is in the northwest. And it it's not in the Delta, but it borders the Delta. And again, if you've never visited Mississippi and driven across the Delta, it's one of those just wonders of weirdness mm -hmm. where you are driving through cotton fields and it's flat highway and you keep going and all of a sudden it just plummets and you can see the ridge of where the delta begins because apparently a long time ago that was where the river flowed through mm. um, and then it just receded and it left the delta there and that's why the delta has such rich farmlands it's also the poorest area in the whole country mm -hmm. Tallulah's parents marriage was a little scandalous back in the day her mother was engaged to another man when she met William Bankhead. And she went to a trip to Huntsville to buy her wedding dress. Ooh. And she met William Bankhead. Damn. And so it was like one of those things, you know, love at first sight. And <laughs> so she broke up with her fiancé, left him at the altar, it sounds like, Damn. basically. And on January 31st, 1900, they were married in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. So her their first child, uh, Evelyn Eugenia Bankhead, was born. And then the next year, Tallulah was born to her parents on their second wedding anniversary. So it was pretty much like bam, bam. No kidding. And Tallulah was born in the Isaac Schiffman Building in Huntsville National Register of Historic Places marker that, you know, shows that she was born in that second story. Because she's, she's a big deal. I remember vaguely hearing about her name, mm -hmm. but not really making any kind of connections and definitely didn't know that she was from Alabama. Mm -hmm. Three weeks after... Tallulah was born. Her mother died of blood poisoning or oh. sepsis. And coincidentally, Tallulah's maternal 
grandmother also died giving birth to her mother. So it seemed to be kind of like a pattern repeated. And I don't know if that really had anything. Tallulah never had kids. So I'm not sure if that had really anything to do with it. But on her deathbed, it is said that Ada told her sister-in-law to take care of Eugenia. Tallulah will always be able to take care of herself. <laughs> okay. So Tallulah was baptized next to her mother's coffin, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Her dad was completely devastated by his wife's death and also leaving him with two young children. Like, holy shit, like one and or yeah. zero and one year old. Is that what they right, were? Right, right. Basically. Ooh. And it sent him into a bout of depression and alcoholism. Tallulah and her sister were then really raised by her namesake, Tallulah James Brockman Bankhead. Mm -hmm. It it was a a family of influence. I mean, they're a political family, a family, and they had money, Mm -hmm. they had power, and they had, you know, influence. So she was raised at the family estate called Sunset in Jasper, Alabama. She spent her childhood trying, she was the second child. And so she spent her childhood trying to get her father's attention. She always needed approval, her father's approval, and more so because she was described as a like extremely homely and overweight while oh, her older shit. sister was thin and prettier than she was. She was highly energetic. She was prone to throw tantrums, rolling around the floor, holding her breath until she was blue in the face. Very strong-willed child. Her grandmother often threw a bucket of cold water on her to like (laughs) stop her from these outbursts that she would have. And it was all attention-seeking. And that pretty much didn't change throughout her life. When she was five, she had her tonsils removed, and it was botched a little bit by the doctor, Mm, um, and he cut into um, mm, her, like... Larynx? He cut something back there that caused her a lot of pain, and her dad felt really bad for her. And they said that this possibly could be why Mm. she, she has a a known very husky voice like Mm -hmm. when she grew up and they thought that maybe this botched surgery was caused her husky voice but Mm -hmm. she also had a lot of chronic bronchitis as a child and said that it was probably her mezzo baso voice was due more to that but you know this surgery happened and it caused her a lot of pain and her dad was giving her attention he felt really bad about it so he took her to a vaudeville show Mm -hmm. at this time and she taught herself, like, totally just enraptured with the show. They were cartwheeling, and they were doing these skits. And so she taught herself how to do cartwheels. And she could always be found cartwheeling around the house, singing, and reciting literature that she memorized. She had, like, a photographic memory. Mm. And so, you know, once this was discovered that she could actually entertain people with her you know reciting and performing she became pretty much an uh, exhibitionist from the beginning and you know her theatrics really gained her the attention that she so much wanted uh, she would often mimic her teachers from school 
And she claimed that, Tulula claimed that her first performance was witnessed by the Wright brothers, as in the airplane. Mm -hmm. So Orville and um, Wilbur. Redenbacher. Yeah. (laughs) Orville Redenbacher, (laughs) the popcorn guy, (laughs) and her aunt got it on. Oh. No. Um, Orville and Wilbur were visiting her aunt Maria, and she... There in Montgomery, Alabama, huh. and she said to Lula claimed that I won the prize for the top performer with my imitation of my kindergarten teacher. Lula wrote the judges Orville and Wilbur Wright. This comes from an autobiography that she wrote. So Tallulah and her sister Eugenia's grandmother and aunt were beginning to find the girls <laughs> even more difficult than normal to handle as they aged and we're, we're shocker we're, shocker you know we're like 10 or 11 you know we're like bordering that hormonal they're tweens yeah puberty thing going on and they were like this is just too much because you know Tulula was already you know out there to begin with and then her sister it sounds like wasn't too far behind so it's off to catholic school for you both <laughs> so their father was working from their hunt home a lot as a lawyer and he proposed that the girls be enrolled in a convent school which always does wonders for those who are just you know rebellious in nature <laughs> which is kind of funny because you know he was Methodist and their mother was Episcopalian <laughs> But in 1912, both girls were enrolled in the Convent of the Sacred Heart in Manhattan, New York. Mm. Uh, Eugenia, wow. Yeah, Eugenia was 11 and Tallulah was 10. So about this time, I mean, he's in politics. <laughs> like, we'll just send you to Manhattan. <laughs> we'll just send you across the country and then we'll go have a gin and tonic. <laughs> and he, well, their dad was working in D.C. at the time, so mm. it wasn't too far removed, but it was way far removed from Montgomery. You know, mm. Montgomery. <laughs> but you know, it sounds like you know these jet setters. Oh, Huntsville, though. Yeah, sorry. They were well. It was Montgomery because no. it was like Huntsville, Montgomery. They were they were yeah, like forth between. Yeah, okay. all all over the place. And her dad's political career, like I said, brought him to West uh, Washington. So you know they kind of skip from school to school and closer schools to Washington. And and at the age of 15, Tallulah's aunt encouraged her to take more pride in her appearance, which I have a hard time believing it was just at the age of 15. Mm. I would have, as as a chunky girl, I'm pretty sure they gave her a hard time like all throughout her life. But as she, like, 15's the marrying age in Alabama, right? (laughs) I don't know. But... We can, you know, we just sure it was then. making assumptions here. <laughs> so her aunt was encouraging to just take more pride in her appearance and suggested she go on a diet to oh, improve God. her confidence. <laughs> this will improve your confidence. I'll bring to light something that you don't personally think is a problem. Right. <laughs> and, but I mean, yeah, it doesn't really sound like she had that much problem with her confidence to begin with. Mm-hmm. So Tallulah. Being the stronger and even more rebellious personality, sought a career in acting and... Sorry. What are you doing? I dropped an olive. (laughs) We have olives? 
It was from the pizza. Oh. <laughs> I totally thought you were catching a spider. I thought you were like catching a, a spider too. I was like, kill it. I know. I thought I was, I wanted to make sure you knew that black thing was a black outlet from the pizza. Sorry, okay. Not okay. a bug. Continue. Okay. <laughs> Carrying on. So at the age of 15, she went on a diet, but no. So they were really, her and her sister, being Southern Hellions, Hellcats, uh, at these you know convent schools with Mother Mary Teresa nuns and their rulers wrapping knuckles and stuff. They were not tamed. Like, that the, <laughs> had no effect on them whatsoever. Eugenia, her older sister... Nice was more of a romantic and got married at the age of 16. Oh, gross. And ended up, <laughs> her sister ended up marrying like seven times to six different men during her life. Did they all die? Probably. I, I, I doubt it. Sounds I doubt suspicious. It. Sounds like a next story. <laughs> Can be. I'll look into that. <laughs> Tallulah, though, was a much more rebellious personality and wanted a career and men were just something on the side. Although men played a big part, mm -hmm. but not a part in like tacking her down. I was going to say men are a means to an end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she definitely picked lust over love and showed Good no pr particular interest <laughs> in marrying. Oh, my God. She is such a badass. I'm just going to tell you right now. I love this woman. <laughs> I totally like if I would have studied her and just how much she did and how much she just fucking went for it at like 15 years old <laughs> I I would have been like I, I, I'm still just amazed anyway let's continue so Tallulah was on a side note because she was from or she lived in Montgomery with her aunts and her um, namesake grandmother was friends with, you know, American socialite novelist Zelda. Zelda, I knew you were going to say Zelda. Fitzgerald. I knew Zelda was coming into this story because it's the same time period same, in Montgomery. Right, in Montgomery, yes. So, yeah, she. I don't want to say that, uh, that um, Tallulah ever peaked because <laughs> I really don't think that she ever peaked. But in her 20s... It was the roaring. Tw I mean, she hit mm. the roaring, roaring, Yeah, in her twenties, she was like the ideal flapper age. Mm -hmm. um, so her career Perfect. started at fifteen. Damn. So she happened to, you know, after the vaudeville thing and her starting to entertain people and getting attention from that, she submitted her photo to Picture Play, which was like a magazine or something that was conducting a contest and awarding people with a trip to New York, plus a movie part for like 12 people solely based on their photographs. What? So she sent her photograph in, but she forgot to send in her name or her address. Well, shit. But she won. And so, and she didn't know that she won until she was at a drugstore looking at the magazines and she sees her photo in this magazine and it's captioned who is she it's captioned have you seen this uh, child right <laughs> have you seen this this child and so she was like oh shit that's me that's me <laughs> and they you know they urged her in the magazine to contact the paper at once and so her dad sent a letter because you know 
senator. <laughs> he's a senator now. I don't know at this time if he's he a was, senator. He was in politics. He was in lawyer, politics. So he yeah, got connections. He, he had connections. They all. I mean, they have money. It, they've had money. It's like yeah, the upper crust of mm. Montgomery, Huntsville, Alabama, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes up to New York and she's paid $75 for three weeks of work in this film called Who Loved Him Best. And she only had like a minor part. But again, really like being in New York, being 15, being in this picture, it just, this is where she was born to be. Mm-hmm. She had been in New York, right? But then she'd been back around schools to school. Mm-hmm. But she had been in New York in school for right. While she but was it's younger. different to be on a movie set, yeah, right? Than in a convent, too. right? 10, <laughs> a movie set is different than a convent. Oh. <laughs> is it? What? Oh, it depends no. on what movie you're in, unless right? you're Julie Andrews. <laughs> unless you're Julie Andrews. <laughs> Nobody so solves I, a problem like Tallulah. At the age of 15, she moved into the Algonquin Hotel, which was the hot spot for the artistic and literary elite of the area. Uh-oh. So she moved <laughs> into the like big artistic free for all so orgies 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 oh <laughs> my lord she quickly charmed her way into the famous Alagonquin round table of the hotel bar at the age of 15 and became a part of the vicious circle Whoa. which talked about pretty much everybody and anybody mm. in society and in the arts there was it like it's like the mean girls club it she was totally in the mean girls oh, club no. she probably Tallulah. i don't know if she was president of the mean girls club <laughs> but she was dubbed one of the four writers of the algonquin <laughs> of the apocalypse of the right the of four the, writers of the algonquin the book <laughs> What was the book they called it in Mean Girls? Oh, I can't remember what they called it. The Burn Book. The Burn Book. Yes. So (laughs) it was Tallulah. It was Estella Winwood, Eva LeGalligan, and Blythe Daly. Blythe Danner? Dolly. Blythe Dolly. While she was like in this Mean Girls group talking, dishing about all the things, her dad warned her. She's like, you know, at 15. Avoid alcohol and men when she got to New York. So that was like his advice is like oh avoid alcohol and men. Now here's fifty dollars. Right. Go be free. And go yeah, go live in this like artistic <laughs> hotel. And Tallulah later said he didn't say anything about women and cocaine. Oh shit. So the oh Algonquin wild parties introduced Tallulah to cocaine, marijuana. Which she later remarked, cocaine isn't habit forming. I know because I've been taking it for years. <laughs> she is pretty much, if you listen to the over exaggeration of Corella DeVille, mm-hmm. she very much talks like darling was her catchphrase. So any upper society darling mm-hmm. talk was Tulula Bankhead's doing. Oh, darling. <laughs> darling. Tulula abstained from drinking, keeping her promise to her dad. Really? Plausible deniability. <laughs> <laughs> but she definitely slept with men and women and did coke and marijuana. 
all in her teens. Shit. <laughs> she also befriended yes. uh, Estella Woodwin, who was pretty much a lifelong friend of hers. And she met Ethel Barrymore, who was the great aunt of actress Drew Barrymore. Oh, but damned. Ethel Barrymore tried to persuade her to change her first name to Barbara. What? Yeah, which is good because Tallulah fits her. Bob? Um, Barbara? Oh, Barbara. Bob. They're actually saying Baba. She's saying Barbara. Barbara. Babwa. Babwa. But Barbara Bankhead. That just doesn't Barbara Bankhead. Say it like a Yankee, Patrice. Barbara. Barb. Barb. Come on, Barb. Barb. Sorry, Yankee friends. Barb. Barb. But Tallulah declined. Vanity Fair later wrote that she was the only actress on both sides of the Atlantic to be recognized by her first name only. So she was the original Cher. Yeah, Tallulah. Oh, Tallulah yes. was the original. Yes. You said Tallulah and you knew exactly who you're talking about, <laughs> darling. <laughs> At the age of 16, 17, she had roles in three different silent films, When Men Portray, 30 a Week, and The Trap. Is she the trap? She actually, I think she plays a demure housewife mm. at the age at 16, of 16. It was soon after that that she found the stage and she debuted in The Squab Farm in New York. And she realized that really the stage was where she was meant to be because it was instant gratification. It was yeah. pure energy. Like when you're on a movie set, it's like, acting and then you go sit for a while mm -hmm. and then you have to wait and then you, you don't get that you don't get any feedback you don't get any feedback and there's no energy and she was pure just like energy did you say the name of the theater was the squab farm no the squab farm is what she debuted like the the play that she debuted what a the weird name, of the, name for anything though but the name of the um theater was the uh bijou bijou, bijou. yeah B -I -J -E theater uh in new york she also had a role in the 1919 Footloose, 1919 <laughs> Nice People. I don't know if that's like... You, you think know. it was a town that couldn't dance? <laughs> no music? No Which would like fit her personality yeah. perfect, She's right? She's Kevin Bacon. And it she would make is. sense because that was during Prohibition. So right? <laughs> Footloose and Prohibition time sounds about right where it came from. Yeah. It's probably like footloose and fancy free yes that's probably it and nice people 1921 everyday 1921 danger 1922 her temporary husband 1922 mm. and the exciter so she like Whoa. did all of these plays and her acting was praised but the plays themselves were commercially and critically unsuccessful so she with names like that i don't know why <laughs> but danger danger the her temporary husband <laughs> i like that one that Actually, sounds like that one does make me want to see it i know i, I want to read the temporary husband <laughs> i had one <laughs> and thank y'all for listening to the strange sound <laughs> and good day i told you i would drink all much <laughs> so tallulah also with many temporary husbands, <laughs> uh, had been in New York for five years 
and was 20. Oh, oh Lord. God. But she had yet to score a significant hand, a hit. <laughs> she <laughs> she hadn't got the hit. <laughs> I was listening to this podcast, or not a podcast, it was actually an audio book. Her autobiographical story is not on Audible, so I could not listen to that, and I was not going to read. I don't have time to read like words and things like that. I uh, pay you to read to me. <laughs> right, that's, that's why right. I pay you, Audible. Exactly, that's why I pay you, but her, her book was not on there. But I was listening to what was on there. It's like a little hour history on different celebrities and stuff, and they said, you know, you know, she moved to London. She went from New York at 20 from New York to London. And this history said that she had met this. I don't even know who he was, but she met this Mr. Man. And he's like, you would be perfect for this production of this Mr. French man over <laughs> Mr. In, Big. in London. Right. This sounds like a porn setup. Yes, it's very much does. And so Mr. French man, like, <laughs> he, he told he told Mr. Man, like, you know, I've already got somebody that's going to headline this production that I'm setting up. And Mr. Man told Mr. Frenchman, but you haven't met Tallulah. Oh. Mr. Frenchman says, no, thanks. And Mr. Man goes like, you don't know what you're doing. And Tallulah goes, you obviously don't know what you're doing, darling. Uh, uh, darling. And so at the age of 20, she books a passage to London, knowing that she doesn't have the part, but totally convinced that he made a mistake and that the part should be hers. So she goes there by herself, is in London, doesn't know where anything is, finds uh, Mr. Man over there in London, and she's like, I'm here, let's go convince Mr. French Man to give me the part, and they do, and she does, because she's very charismatic, and she talks him into, like, getting this part in this play. Wow. Which is amazing. In 1923, 21-year-old Tallulah Bankhead made her debut on the London stage in the Wyndham Theatre. Over the next eight years, she did so many different plays. She did The Dancers at the Lyric. She did Gold Diggers. She ended up being, because she was so personable and such a big personality, she got typecast. And mm. she was also very promiscuous also during this time. Like, mm. she was like, it was the 20s. Like, yeah. this this is the 20s. Yeah. It was flappers. She and was she's like, in her 20s. And she's in her 20s. And she is like the epitome of the 20s flapper. Living large, living out all night, doing cocaine, sleeping with everybody. You know, she is living her best life. And it wasn't until in 1924 when she played uh, They Knew What They Wanted that she played against her type and actually won a Pulitzer Prize mm. when she Wait, was 23. Pulitzer? Pulitzer, thank you. They gave a they gave it for that, though? Mm-hmm. Oh. They gave her for the character Amy that she played and They Knew What She Wanted. And she's she's starting to build up like fans. She has fans who know what she does. And she she's a bit of a ham because again, she's always hmm. like wanted to like entertain and play and be adored by people. While she, you know, won that prize for that play in uh, 1924, it was the play, The Gold Diggers, that, you know, she was back at drunken antics of cartwheels and dancing and, and that, you know, her fans really wanted and were appreciative of. But while she was in London and doing all these different plays, she bought herself a Bentley, which she loved, obviously. 
However, she was not very competent with directions oh, and constantly found herself lost in the London streets. So, what she and they drive on the other side, right? <laughs> and you know, she was very not worried really. She was very privileged. She was born into privilege. She didn't even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. But when she would get lost, she would call a taxi and she would pay the driver to go to the destination and then she would drive behind the taxi <laughs> to get to where she needed to go when That's she would get lost. Clever. She was yeah. extremely smart. I mean, extremely clever. That's it. That's eccentric. Mm-hmm. Very eccentric, right? <laughs> Darling. So she spent eight years there in the London stage, and she earned a reputation for really making the most of inferior material. She was really great at improv. Mm. For example, in her autobiography, she talks about the opening of this play called Conchita, which was about, a, I believe, a Spanish barmaid and the critics really like ground her like into the dirt on this one. But she says, in the second act, I came on carrying a monkey. <laughs> on opening night, the monkey went berserk. <laughs> he snatched my black wig from my head, leaped from my arms, scampered down to the floodlights where he paused peered out into the audience, then waved my wig over his head. (laughs) The audience had been giggling at the absurd plot even before the simian had me. Now it became hysterical. What did Tallulah do in this crisis? I turned a cartwheel and the audience roared. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, when in doubt, turn a cartwheel. When in doubt, turn a cartwheel. After the monkey business, I was afraid they may boo me, but instead I received an ovation. Sounds like the monkey received an ovation. Yeah, it really does. But they said that that was a horrible, that was not the role for her. And she tried to play her Southern charms into a Spanish character, which did not work. It was mistake yeah so it was a flop the critics said that she had no personality she's following these critics and they say that she has no personality which is what she prides herself on and she went really into an almost instant depression where she went into her room and she took a handful of sleeping pills trying to kill herself damn i know don't read the comments girl i know right don't Um, read the comments and she ended up from all these pills that she took passing out however she says the next day she woke up feeling fine and ready to go i was like she got some really deep sleep (laughs) she probably got some like really needed sleep there but one of the problems that she found when she was over in london that she has never paid taxes before and the tax man cometh for her Uh Uh and she ended up having to like owe all this money and it just became a bad situation Things were settling down there in London. So she's like, I'm going to go back over to New York. So and when she was 29 years old, Tallulah returned to the United States. And this was like 1931. But Hollywood at that time still kind of eluded her. She did she did four films in one year. Like, yeah, they this, turned them out back then. This is like the that kind of the, work. Yeah. yeah, that she was she was constant. Like all these plays and all these. She was constantly working 
always. And the fact that she at that time was 29 years old, which was kind of like old maid in Hollywood terms. She was pretty prolific throughout Mm -hmm. her career. Like she worked throughout her career. She never, I'm sure, I mean, the parts changed obviously, but she was never really put out to pasture because she was larger than life and she was became this staple of you know the Hollywood circles and the motion pictures at the time so she went back to New York and she got these parts and these bad parts in these really meh Mm. kind of movies and she didn't like it at all like in 1931 she played the tarnished lady of the film the tarnished lady which fit into her stereotype of what she usually plays but she got bored she didn't like the parts it seemed to be kind of monotonous and she really had no patience for the filmmaking schedule after living eight years over in the UK and touring and doing all this you know really energizing back and forth with the audience and her fans you know Hollywood was kind of meh Mm. to her And she met this producer, Irving Thalberg, and she says, how do you get laid in this dreadful place? (laughs) And Thalberg retorted, I'm sure you'll have no problems. Ask anyone. (laughs) Uh, She moved from New York to Hollywood and she rented a home and she began hosting parties where the parties were said to have no boundaries. <laughs> but she's not really, you know, interested in making films at this time because, again, they're kind of boring. They're giving her the kind of the same part over and over again. And, and it's a lot of it is very formulaic, mm. especially during those times right before um, World War II, after, you know, the Roaring Twenties. And then, you know, still she's getting a little bit older. But they offered to pay her like $50,000 per film. So that's nothing to sneeze at. So in 1932, she made the movie Devil in the Deep. And it's notable because there were three major co-stars there with her and she was billed first. She was like the top billing, acting next to Gary Cooper and Charles Lafton and uh, Cary Grant. Oh, wow. And so like these really big time stars and she's like the number one star on the Playbill or whatever you call it, the <laughs> lights. The, 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 what do they call it? The, the thing outside the, the marquee. 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 She was a, yeah. And it was actually that film was the only film that Cooper and Grant were the same in the same film as leading men, although they shared no scenes together. She literally says, darling, the main reason I accepted the part was to fuck that divine Gary Cooper. <laughs> Gary Cooper, not Gary Grant. Gary. Yeah, Gary Cooper. I'm to look him up. <laughs> I've been looking her up. I've been looking at uh-huh. these pictures of her. So in 1932, Tallulah starred opposite uh, Robert Montgomery and Faithless. So she was getting like all these top build lady parts, mm-hmm. getting a lot of attention. And Motion Picture Magazine in 1932, she did an article. And in that article, she ranted about the state of her life and her views on love and marriage and children. 
And she said, I'm serious about love. I'm damn serious about it now. I haven't had an affair for six months. (laughs) Six months. Too long. If there's anything the matter with me now, it's not Hollywood or Hollywood state of mind. The matter with me is I want a man. Six months is a long, long while. I want a man. (laughs) So she said this in this um to this reporter and of course the reporter you know published it <laughs> and the times actually ran this story about it and her family back in the south caught Uh-oh. wind of it and got kind of pissed about it until Lula immediately telegraphed her father vowing never to speak with the magazine reporter again cuz obviously she was just like shooting the shit with the guy and of course he published it <laughs> because she was just known for saying just outrageous stuff and because of these out offhanded remarks and because of the time period right before world war ii where they were starting to really come down on censor and censoring mm-hmm. movies Tallulah was cited in the Hayes Committee Doom Book, which was a list of 150 characters or characters, 150 actors and actresses considered unsuitable for the public. Oh, of course, she had something to say about that. Tallulah, who was at the top of the list, basically, (laughs) with the heading Verbal Moral Turpitude, (laughs) publicly called Hayes a little prick. Uh-huh. <laughs> Verbal moral turpitude. So she was getting all this shit from the higher than thou, holier than thou's in Hollywood. So, and she wasn't digging the movie scene anyway. So she went back to Broadway and starred in a series of really middling plays, which were ironically later turned into highly successful Hollywood films. <laughs> Yeah, starring other actresses. And when she was in New York, she was wanting to do, you know, different things, but could never find anyone to produce it. So she decided to direct her own production. And in 1933, she produced or directed uh, Forsaken All Others. And this was a romantic comedy drama with three friends, like love triangle kind of thing. And it was moderately successful. And she ran like 110 performances. But then a, the film came out of it in 1934 with Joan Crawford. And oh. it became one of the year's biggest financial critical success. And still the same thing with like she did Jezebel and Dark Victories. And these were both kind of eh, received on the stage but turned into prestigious films for Betty Davis so Betty Davis is Jezebel y'all remember that but eventually like having produced these pieces on the stage she found herself like in debt because again they weren't popular on the stage as they were in the movie theaters and it was in like 1933. So y'all, she's been back over in the States for two years. And she's she's already done this shit. She's like, she's done New York, done a bunch of plays, moved out to Hollywood, done a bunch of movies, and then come back to New York to do more plays. Like in, All in two years. All in mm-hmm. two years. Like all of this, you know, this is like a lifetimes of work that she's done like in two years, right? But it was while she was back in New York performing in Jezebel that she started to have in like un bearable abdominal pain and swelling 
And she was in and out of the hospital for several months. And it was because the doctors had misdiagnosed her. She had gonorrhea. Oh, shit. And it had gone on long enough because she had um, been misdiagnosed. They didn't know what it was that it got into a reproductive 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 system really that's what it is right <laughs> um and so she ended up having an emergency uh hysterectomy mm. for like five hours where she almost died during the surgery Oy. and she claimed that she had con contracted it either from gary cooper <laughs> Or George Raft. <laughs> she was, she did fuck all. She was going to name names and did not care one bit. Had gonorrhea from Gary Cooper. Right? So when she got out of, it threw her into automatic menopause as hysterectomy does do sometimes. Does sometimes. And she weighed only 70 pounds when she what? left the hospital. Shit. However, she vowed to continue her promiscuous and partying lifestyle. She stoically said to her doctor, don't think this has taught me a lesson. <laughs> I refuse to learn. <laughs> I refuse to learn. All right. And this is going to end the first part of Tallulah Bankhead's most lustfully promiscuous <laughs> amazing life turpitude <laughs> in the after talk we will talk more about her sexcapades sexcapades uh, gonorrhea gonorrhea Lord. that shouldn't be a song I'm sorry no it really shouldn't <laughs> well but happy 100th episode friends Tallulah Tallulah happy 100 happy thank y'all so much for listening to us if you're just starting to listen to us or if you've listened all the way we appreciate you so much yes and we will talk to you soon bye 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 y'all Thank you for being a friend. Do 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 do. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. But I don't And if you threw a party, invited everyone you knew. Everyone you knew. You would see the biggest gift would be from me. And the card attached would say, thank you for being a friend. Do, 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 do.